Osiris. Hi, I'm Lara Bennett, and you're listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. Neil was a gifted singer, songwriter, musician, and friend to many. He released 14 albums as a solo artist and collaborated on countless projects with other musicians. After his passing in 2019, his friends and family created the Neil Cassell Music Foundation to provide instruments and music lessons to students in New York and New Jersey and to support organizations that offer musicians mental health care. One of the featured projects of the newly formed foundation is the tribute album, Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell, a sprawling 41-song collection bringing together a galaxy of rock and roots luminaries. We've asked the contributing musicians to share their memories of Neil and their stories of making the record. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. Pre-order the album and learn more about the Neil Cassell Music Foundation at neilcassellmusicfoundation.org. Hi, Gary. How are you? I'm good, Lara. How are you? Great, thanks. Gary, you are the mastermind behind this tribute album, Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell. You are the executive director of the Neil Cassell Music Foundation, and obviously you were Neil's longtime friend and manager from the very beginning, along with several other hats that you wear. So can you tell me how the idea to record a tribute album first occurred to you? It kind of grew out of the tribute concert we did for Neil about a month after he died. We did a multi-artist seven-hour tribute show at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, where we invited as many friends of his and musicians that he admired to come and perform either one of Neil's own songs or a song that meant something to him. And that was a beautiful couple of days. We had a beautiful rehearsal day there and the show day was just incredible. And there was a camaraderie amongst all the musicians as sad as we all were. It was beautiful to be together and think about Neil and tell stories about him and laugh about some funny memories we had of him. And from that day, Dave Schools and Jim Scott and I just started hatching this idea. I had already been thinking about it. How do we do this? The meaning behind it, that Neil wrote so many beautiful, beautiful songs that either hadn't been really heard very much, or I just thought putting those songs in other great artists' hands could be really exciting and interesting. So at that memorial concert, which was September 25th, 2019, we started hatching the idea. And very quickly it came together. And the thing that was important to me was to carry on that community and camaraderie that we had at the tribute concert and somehow figure out a way to get that into the recording process where a lot of tribute albums, various artist albums are artists all over the world recording a song in their home studio or at a studio where they live and sending it in and nobody ever sees each other has that kind of experience of talking to other musicians. So we came up with this idea. Jim Scott is a legendary producer, worked with Neil on his first album and his last album, the Circles Around the Sun album that was recorded right before Neil died. Jim worked with Neil for 28, 29 years on and off making demos, recordings. He would hire Neil to play on other records he was producing. They were super, super tight. Jim was really a mentor to Neil. And he has an incredible studio outside of Los Angeles, which is kind of musicians' uh, happy, happy place. There's tons and tons of instruments, keyboards, drum sets, everything is set up and ready to play. So when you walk by a little organ and you hit it like a musician would do, it's actually plugged in. So you hear it come through a PA system. So it's really a fun place to hang out. And it was the perfect place for this experience. And the idea was to have multiple backup bands, bands that played with Neil. So Jeff Hill and Tony Leone from CRB, 
Bob Glaub and Don Heffington, who played on Neil's first few albums, great rhythm section, Circles Around the Sun. So the idea was to bring in other artists and hang with one of those bands and perform their own songs. So before COVID hit, we did actually manage to record 16 songs in that manner, a song a day. So for example, Billy Strings came in the first day, played with Circles Around the Sun. So they had picked a song, Billy started playing it, Circles figured out an arrangement, and by dinner time, it was pretty much done. for about 10 days, and that was in February. Then we got together for another session in March of 2020, which was another five or six songs, and that eventually got cut short. So we were hoping at some point to pick up that experience because we were having so much fun. It was so much fun to be at that studio and all be together, and we're having communal dinners and lunch and everybody was hanging out. We had a little altar to Neil and we had all these funny pictures of him that were goofing on him. Uh, Also his archive of tapes and photography was all there. So we really felt a connection to him there, which was really special. After COVID started dragging on so long, we realized, well, if we're going to finish this record, we're going to have to let people do it where they are, whether it's at home or sending tapes recordings, files all over the place. So that's what we did. And thanks to the genius of Jim Scott and Dave Schools and making that happen, we've somehow managed to record 41 songs. And I should also say John Ginty, who produced two of the songs on the record, and Jeff Hill, who also produced a couple songs on the record. Everybody made incredible contributions. It's amazing. Well, the result is beautiful and, and moving. And I'm sure it was a bit of a healing process or part of part of the process to be able to be together and go through, you know, those archives and all, all that amazing music. So what was the artist response like when you came to people and presented the idea? Uh, just about everybody was like, yeah, I'm in. There was not a lot of hemming and hawing. There was less like, yeah, I got to do it. Let's figure it out, which was great because so many of his friends – we're just ready to go. And there's, it was easy, dare I say it. Like looking back on it, I know it was 41 songs and it was challenging and every song has its own story. But I think that in retrospect, it fell together pretty easily, which is the whole process has been fairly easy. The tribute concert was, and when I say easy, it wasn't without challenges. It was just more Everybody wanted to help and be involved, so that made it easy. We didn't have to twist a lot of arms. People were ready to go, and that that was amazing. So you obviously have known Neil for the entirety of his career, and you knew most of, I mean, I'm sure all of these songs since the very beginning. So did you have a hand in picking songs for certain artists, or how was that process? Yeah, I did. Um, there were There were certain songs that, I imagined what artists could be really good for. I knew that I wanted Warren Haynes to do Free to Go. I just had a feeling that it was a song that he could own and make his own, which he certainly did. You must have something to say.
Feel No Pain, Leslie Mendelssohn had done that at the tribute concert. And I, that was one where I had to twist her arm a little bit because she there were some other songs that she was interested in, but I knew that Feel No Pain was going to be perfect for her. And I, I don't think that she didn't love the song. She did. I think it was more the key that the song was in. She was worried whether she could sing it the right way. So I think she changed the key and just made a stunning version. So come and see me later on You know where I'll be Singing these songs out by the barn Hoping they'll hear me So go and try to save your sons While you still have time And tell them they're the only ones Who can make their dreams up and There's other songs on there that I had people in mind for that came together. And then there's some that were unlikely. I, I uh, Billy Strings, for example, he did a song called All the Luck in the World, which is on Neil's second album. It's one of the later songs on the album, late on side two. It's on the Rain, Wind and Speed album. That had never occurred to me that that was a song that he would do. Luckily, his manager, a guy named Bill Orner, who's a huge music fan and really loved Neil's music, he turned Billy on to that song, and Billy loved it and just did a crushing version of it. So there were a lot of surprises. Uh, most of the people that Dave had an idea for a song for or Jim did, those kind of came together. But then there's quite a few where people surprised us with their selections and dug into his catalog and... I love that that happened. And as you mentioned, so many of these songs I knew from the first time he started writing them, just Neil and I went back to 1987 and we worked together for, for years on his solo career. And we always wanted people to record his songs. And so to hear this happen, to hear those songs come to life in the hands of other artists was just, I mean, it was really emotional for me a lot of times because of the memories I have of some of these songs from the very early days. A lot of them are go back to the early, mid-90s. So it was incredible. I bet. Wow. So 1987, tell me about how you first met Neil and started working with him. I was working at a record store called Al Wilk Records in the Morris County Mall in Cedar Knolls, New Jersey. Really fun record store. I was 22 years old when I was working there, and it was just one of those great record store experiences. It was in the days where people made an afternoon of going to the record store to buy records. It wasn't like it is now where you could just get everything at your fingertips. You had to go dig stuff out and search for it. So it was a really fun, fun place to work and a great community of people working there. One of the guys I worked with was a guy named Ed Trunk who has gone on to be a legend in the heavy metal music world. He's uh, not only worked at heavy metal record labels, but he's written books on heavy metal, hosted VH1 classics metal show, has a serious radio show that's hugely popular. And he's the one of the foremost authorities on heavy metal. So Ed and I were great friends for many, many years. Subsequently, Ed helped me get a job at a label called Megaforce Records, uh, which is a label that found Metallica and Anthrax in the place where I launched my music industry uh, adventure. But before we worked there, Ed and I worked together at Alwilk, and Ed was also hosting a Friday night Headbangers Ball radio show on the local station in North Jersey called WDHA. And Neil was in high school down the street, a couple towns over. He had a high school metal band called Exire. And the bass player in that band was a guy named Steve Witchell. He used to come and shop for records at the store I worked at. And one day he came in with a cassette tape that Exire had recorded. And he was like, you guys got to check out our band. And, and uh, maybe Ed can play it on his metal show. So, of course, Ed and I... We're probably skeptical, but we listened to the cassette after Steve 
left and thought this is actually quite good. And so we went to see them play. They were playing a show at a place called the show place in Dover, New Jersey, which is subsequently turned into half recording studio, half go-go bar. Um, it's kind of a famous place in, in New Jersey. And I walked in there and Xire was playing and I saw Neil up on the stage and I just thought, wow, this, this guy is good. He had a great voice. He was playing some great guitar. Uh, they all had big hair. Neil had big hair. It was 1987. So uh, it was Bon Jovi and Def Leppard time. So you had to have big hair if you were in a young metal band. But there was something a little bit different about them. And I guess it was Neil because he had a more of a classic rock voice, a voice like Paul Rogers of Bad Company. was a huge Stones fan and Jackson Brown fan. So he really sang beautifully, even at that point, and even in a hard rock band. So we became friends, and we bonded pretty quickly. And it was a lot about a band called Blackfoot, which was a Southern rock band that we both loved. Uh, the original Leonard Skinnerd had a guy in the band called Ricky Medlock, and he subsequently left Leonard Skinnerd to form this band, Blackfoot. And they were great hard rock, Southern rock band. And they had a couple really big selling records in the late seventies, early eighties. And a lot of people in North Jersey where Neil and I grew up, loved this band because they had moved from Florida in the mid seventies to live in North Jersey, to try to be close to New York city and get a record deal. So when Neil and I were coming up and we would go to guitar stores or go to shows around North Jersey, people would always be talking about Blackfoot, Blackfoot, Blackfoot. And so we both became huge fans of them and they're incredible, underrated, great band. Anyway, I'll, to make a long story short, Neil and I became great pals. And Neil met a guy named Davis Janes, who was about 15 years older than him. And Davis had played with Leslie West, who was in a band called Mountain, had that hit song called Mississippi Queen that most, most classic rock fans have heard. And Davis was running a guitar store in Hackettstown, New Jersey, called The Music Maker. And he met Neil. Neil went in there looking for a job because I think Neil was like, what kind of job am I going to do? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to work in a guitar store. And he got hired and Davis became his guitar mentor. They would sit in the store and play guitars for hours. And Davis really, really worked on Neil to be like, you're not going to be Eddie Van Halen. We already got him. You're not going to be John Bon Jovi. We already got him. Who are you going to be? really pushed Neil to pull the music out of his, his self rather than trying to copy somebody else and gave him that inspiration to write and play his own music. And that six months that they worked together, Neil just transformed. His musical ability just went through the roof. And a lot of that is really because of Davis. At the same time, because I loved Blackfoot so much, and I was working at a record store, I had just randomly contacted their management. Hey, I work at a record store. Could I put up some posters or play the records? We love Blackfoot. We want to promote them. 
and I'd become friendly with their managers over a year or two. And in 88, the band was really on its last legs. They were just a Southern rock band. Southern rock was out of fashion, but they were still playing shows, a thousand people coming to the shows or whatever. So they were still a legitimate band and they were looking for some new members to be in the band and they were looking for a guitar player. And I was like, I've got a young guy. He's, you got to try him out. And they were like, how old is he? And it's like 19. And they were like, uh, no, I don't think so. And I was like, trust me, I'll, I'll, I'll bring him out there. So we went out to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where they were based and Neil rehearsed with them and just crushed it. It was amazing. I can remember sitting there watching it and Ricky Medlock, who's, uh, you know, at that point must have been in the music industry for 20 some years and had played all over the world on huge festivals with lots of people. He was playing the song and looking over at Neil going, who's this kid? 19 years old, playing the songs perfectly, singing harmonies. And Neil got the job, got hired in this band, which we were really excited about, even though, like I said, it, they weren't in their their golden era. But the first show he ever did with them was New Year's Eve, 1988 opening for Ted Nugent at Cobo Hall in Detroit, Michigan, which was Ted Nugent at the time. Wasn't the guy that we know now, but he was hugely popular. He was one of the biggest rock stars of the late 70s and 80s. Uh, so it was a sold out arena show. Neil played with Blackfoot, opened the show. And I remember him after the show backstage, all sweaty, talking to his dad on a payphone. I just opened for Ted Nugent. And so it was such a great moment. And, uh, and yeah. that's where he really learned how to, you know, the rock and roll lifestyle going on the road. Uh, he went all over Europe and the U.S. with Blackfoot, amazingly enough. He recorded an album with them, too, He did, right? an album called uh, Medicine Man, I believe it's called. And, uh, yeah, if you dig it out, there's some, there's some really great guitar playing. Yeah. There's a song called uh, Guitar Slinger's Song and Dance, which is, a, which is a really cool song and has a great Neil solo in it. That he was really proud of. I actually have it. You do. Amazing. Yeah, it's right over there. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, some epic pictures of that Bon Jovi oh, yeah. hair. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and uh, uh, lots of hilarious clothes, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so after that, um, how how many years did that last and what what kind of happened? Um, I think it went, it went for a couple of years. It was just one of those situations where it was – you know, like I said, the band had just fallen on hard times. It was out of fashion. So it was, uh, mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, they would be playing shows and it was just getting to the point where it's like, okay, we're playing a thousand capacity club and 400 people are showing up. So I think it just got discouraging for everybody. And for Neil, uh, of course, he was young and could endure a lot, but there was no money for anybody. It was, it was really hard. Neil was living in a barn stealing food from the local 7-Eleven to survive, that kind of vibe. And I think at that point he had started, you know, before he got in Blackfoot, when he was learning from that guy, Davis James, I mentioned, they had a little duo and they would go and play singer songwriter stuff at one of the local restaurants called the recovery room in Morristown, New Jersey. And they would play Elton John, Rod Stewart, Stones, Jackson Brown and Neil that's when I really was like, wow, this guy can really sing these classic songs. He has such a beautiful voice. And in 1990, he had recorded a little demo on a little cassette recorder, a version of a classic song called Sunny Side of the Street, which was his dad's favorite song. So Neil worked up a version of that and recorded it as a birthday present for his dad. And he gave me a cassette of it. And I just couldn't stop listening to it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how great it was. What an incredible vocal performance he had sang on it.
like, you got to start writing your own songs. You could be a solo artist. Why not? Or we could start some kind of band or you got to do it. And so I think that gave him a little, a little incentive and he started writing songs and pretty quickly he had some really good ones. So it was, uh, that point Blackfoot was kind of falling apart. So Neil moved back to New Jersey and I scraped up a little money and I took a week off from work and I said, let's go record four or five songs. Cause he had four or five songs that we really loved. We went to a studio that a friend of ours owned. It's called Mormon recording studios run by a guy named Greg Mormon. And Greg suggested Dan Fadell to play drums and Dan's mo- brother Mike to play bass and Neil actually knew those guys a little bit from high school battle of the band competitions so they came and we recorded uh, five songs and it was amazing for Neil and I because we were really learning a lot about recording and obviously I wasn't playing on the recording I was just hanging out but I was also at this point working at a record label and was involved in a lot of records being made so I knew a little bit so I just hung out and you know, if he asked me for an opinion, I put in my opinion, my two cents. So, and we loved working on demos. We loved recording something, then going out to my car and cranking it up on a cassette tape and going like, ah, oh, this sounds great, but we got to make the snare drum sound better. Like we really loved the whole process. And after we recorded those songs, I, I had the cassette. I was really excited about it. And I knew a guy named Jim Cardillo. He worked at Warner Chapel Music Publishing, which was Warner Brothers publishing arm. And I had known him through the heavy metal world because he worked at a heavy metal marketing company. I worked at a heavy metal record label. We were working in heavy metal, but we bonded because we both loved classic rock. We loved Bob Dylan. We loved Neil Young and Jackson Brown and the Stones and all the great Beatles and so much stuff. And Jim would always, he was an encyclopedia of music and a collector of bootlegs and just had an incredible music collection. And I thought if there's anyone in the music industry, I know that might like this, I'll send it to him. And he got the tape and three songs in, he called me freaking out. Who is this guy? I got to come see him. I got to sign him. So he came out to New York and Neil played a couple songs for him on guitar in a, uh, in a hotel lobby in New York City and got a publishing deal, which was incredible because at that time, publishing companies would give developmental deals to young artists where you would get some money to live on, get some money to record demos, and they would help you get your own record deal. And Warner Chapel and Jim Cardillo really believed in Neil. That enabled Neil to not be in Blackfoot not get a day job. Wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough that he could live on and we could keep it going. So we started making more and more demos. At that point, I had met Jim Scott through one of the artists that I was working with at this record label. We had hired Jim to produce a record and Jim and I just became really good friends. And I was like, I got to send you this young guy I'm working with. And Jim also, to his credit, heard it and was like, yeah, I love this guy. I want to do it. So Jim helped us make some demos, and uh, eventually we got a record deal and made Neil's first album, Fade Away Diamond Time. We made that in March of 1995. So it was uh, there's a lot of stuff I skipped over there, but that's it would be a really long <laughs> podcast if I told you all of these stories. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to hear some more. So we heard a bit about um, making Fade Away Diamond Time from Jim. Yep. 
So do you have any memories of those early albums like Rain, Wind and Speed or Field Recordings? Or that's kind of a compilation actually, but this, or The Sunrise is Here that kind of, I call it Neil's like first wave when he's doing his more Americana fuzz folk thing. Yeah. Uh, well, actually Fade Away was uh, Fade Away Diamond Time was a record we'd spent so much time building up to and we just put our hearts into that and we recorded it in a house in Santa Ynez, California called Palacio del Rio, Palace by the River. It was an old Spanish style mansion and we it was I think it was owned by Jimmy Stewart and it was also some other word, very famous Hollywood person, I forget. But we lived there and it's a magical experience. We all had our own bedrooms. Every bedroom had a fireplace in it. So we lived there for a month and set up a recording studio in the living room and made that record. And it was just an incredible experience. He spent his life like a dollar. He lived it fast and lived it free. And it took his time. Someday, maybe somewhere I'll see you in the blue Kentucky hills, or maybe California. After it came out, the record label sadly folded. Two months into the record being out, Neil was on tour with Government Mule, and people were starting to pay attention to him. And then the record company went under, and we had to start over. And so we had a friend who had a local label called Buyer Die Records in New Jersey, and he scraped up a little money. I scraped up a little money, and Neil went in the studio and recorded Rain, Wind, and Speed in five days. And it's an acoustic album. Only, only other guests on it are John Ginty, and I should mention John because John was really a huge part of Neil's early career. He actually wound up playing on every Neil solo album, I believe. But in the beginning, John lived by us in New Jersey, and we were looking for a keyboard player. Somebody said, you got to go see John Ginty. And he was really Neil's musical sidekick for quite a few years there, really helped on song arrangements and expanded Neil's sound and because we loved Jackson Brown and the classic singer songwriters to have a really fantastic piano player was amazing. And eventually Neil learned how to play piano himself a little bit, but really John had a huge part of that sound of their early Neil albums. And I should mention Angie McKenna as well, who someone had recommended she would be a perfect harmony singer for Neil and she was and the three of them together really made a special sound and you can hear that on those first few albums and one of the funny things about field recordings yes it's a batch of there's some demos there's there's uh some outtakes but one of the things that i mentioned the show place which is where the f first time i saw neil playing a concert was there and where i met him it had subsequently turned into a recording studio and this was Oh, seven or eight years later, and it was a recording studio, and that's where we re recorded a couple of the songs on uh, field recording. So, "Angels on Hold" was recorded in there, and that little there's a little thing called Saturday Morning Jam on there as well. Um, but yeah, the early early recordings and like the whole mission we were on was really great, and we definitely had some setbacks, uh, losing record deal and was just impossible to get another record deal. People looked at you as if you were damaged goods after you lost a record deal, even if it wasn't your fault. And it happened to so many bands back in those days. You'd get a record deal. You're the person who signed you, got fired for some reason or left for another job, and then the label didn't care about you. And so once you had that on your resume, they've been dropped. Nobody wanted to sign you. So we had a figure out how to do it ourselves. And luckily a label in Germany called Glitter House Records had heard Neil's first album. And 
just decided they wanted to put out the second record and do whatever they could to help him. And we had a great relationship with them for quite a few years. And that led to a relationship with Fargo Records in France. And those two labels really kept Neil's career alive, his solo career alive, right up until he joined Ryan Adams because they just believed in him and they would bring him over to tour. And he started to get a fan base in Germany, Scandinavia, England, France, all over unlikely places we never imagined, Japan. But we couldn't get arrested in the U.S. I don't know why. We just couldn't get anything going here. And then that kind of led to the next phase in his career, which was when he ran into Ryan Adams on Avenue B in Manhattan in late 2004, early 2005. And Ryan Adams asked him to join the Cardinals. And he did. And that was a five-year run. And Neil was really proud of the work they did. And they were a fantastic live band, made some great records. And the most enduring thing, I think, too, for Neil was uh, the friendship that he developed with uh, John Grayboff, Brad Pemberton, Ryan as well, and the sadly departed Chris Feinstein. One cool thing about that band was they they played Neil's songs. They did, yeah. Which was, you know, such a treat and how I first encountered his music. Uh, so yeah, that was a really special chapter. And at the same time, he was also playing on other, like so many other people's records. And and at that time, um, Hazy Molise had been around for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I managed a girl named Shannon McNally for a couple of years. She was a really great singer, songwriter, and she had a record deal with Capitol Records. And she needed band members. So I was like, Oh, Neil could play guitar and Jeff Hill could play bass and Dan Fadell could play drums. And somehow that, and John Gindy could play keyboards. And that actually all happened. And Shannon did a tour in 2002 opening for John Mellencamp with Neil, Dan and Jeff and her band. And John was in and out because John, John at that point was playing with all kinds of people. And I, one day in New Jersey, they were playing the Garden State Arts Center. And I was just sitting in the audience by myself. There was no one there. They were just doing sound check. And Neil, Dan, and Jeff were just doing these funk jams. And I was like, this is amazing because Shannon wasn't there to do sound check. She was doing a radio interview. And so they were just jamming, just getting the sound right. And I went backstage when they finished. I was like, you guys should just make it your own band. And so they're just did like a couple of months later, we figured out a way for them to record an album and uh, the couple hazy malaise records. If you dig them out, they're not easy to find, but they're fantastic and they are available on the internet. And it's Neil's kind of funk soul rock band. And he just crushes it in that band. He's great. It's a different side of Neil. And that was his first real adventure into long guitar solos and things like that. So after Ryan um, and the Cardinals, at that point, they were playing with Phil and Friends. So that's how Neil got acquainted with Phil Lesh. And then he continued to play in that world and I guess eventually met Chris Robinson. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because in 1990 or whatever, when the first Black Rose record came out, I was working at Megaforce Records and that first Black Crows album was on Deaf American Records, which was, believe it or not, vaguely associated with the heavy metal world because they'd put out Slayer record and they've put out a couple other hard rock records. And Rick Rubin was the mastermind behind that record. And his partner was George Draculius and George found the Black Crows and produced that first album. And I got a cassette of it and I heard the first song and I called up Neil and I just held the phone up to the speaker and I was like, dude, they beat you to it because they had a very stonesy faces kind of sound that I know Neil somewhere before he imagined himself as a solo artist. I think he imagined himself doing some kind of stonesy faces type of thing. And the Black Crows just did it better than anybody at that point. And we became huge fans of theirs, saw them plenty of times. And Neil was actually a guitar player in the Black Crows for about a month. Uh, but then ultimately never played some any gigs with them. And, and that's a whole other story. But he when they, they had broken up and they reunited in 2004 and Neil got the job to be the lead guitar player, 
but something went a little wrong at rehearsal, so it never actually he never actually played a gig with them. But he and Chris always hit it off, and they also had mutual friends in New York City, so they were always aware of each other. And I think when Chris came up with the idea to form the Chris Robinson Brotherhood, he thought about Neil. And at that point, the Cardinals had broken up. Ryan just decided he wanted to be solo, and Neil was trying to figure out what to do. And Chris came along at the perfect time and had a a great plan for that band. I, I love what Chris did with that band in the beginning where they decided we're just going to play gigs in California. I think for almost a year, all they did was go up and down the state of California playing shows and really figuring out how to be a band because not many, they weren't like guys who'd been friends in high school and then formed a band. They were just people that met each other and started a band and that was a great way to start it and uh, i really uh, neil was really proud of the records and the shows that crb made um, so that was that was a really nice time even though they were touring like 10 months out of the year he still had time found time made time to play with the skiffle players hard-working americans <laughs> obviously circles around the sun and then producing records for others and playing on records and photography and surfing. So how do you think he pulled that all off? Uh, I guess you could say he was a hardworking American. He, he never, <laughs> he never took any time off. That was the, the, that was the thing about Neil that probably in retrospect was, was unfortunate that he didn't take more time off because he would have a two week tour break and I'd be like, great, man, you should go surfing or you should go do this or that. Ah, oh, I told so-and-so I'm going to go play on their record or I'm going to fly here to do this or do that. He just, I think the both of us came from depression era parents and we have work ethics where we start to, I don't know, we've both felt guilty if we weren't working all the time. And I know Neil had that. I know he, he wasn't the kind of guy who could just sit around and relax or, you know, even if it was like, oh, I'm going to go surfing for a couple of days, it was always bookended by a recording session or um, a show or whatever it was, because that was just his, his work ethic. He wanted to work and he kept working and working and working and eventually wore himself out. So it's a whole other tale. But, but really, you know, he loved, he couldn't say no because Beachwood Sparks would call and say, you want to play on our new record? And he had to do it. I want to do it. I think he also had in his head that he wanted to leave a lot of work behind. I think that, and we'd had conversations about that, going back to the early days of how important records were to us and how it was something that would live forever. And he loved that. He loved that idea about recordings. And one of the reasons he never liked, he never liked um, versions of things getting out to people before he thought they were done. So he didn't like if, if there was a rough mix of something, don't send it to anybody. I don't want anybody to hear it yet because it wasn't exactly the way he wanted it to be. Um, so he was a perfectionist in that way, but he really believed in the, power of recordings and music and what they can mean to somebody because of how much recordings had meant to him, how the Rolling Stones exile on main street just changed his life. And so many records that he loved. And I think he spent his life searching for that feeling of like, this record moves me. So why did he have an enormous record collection? Because he wanted to dig through records and find something he didn't know about, but maybe on the back credits he saw, oh, Sneaky Pete is playing pedal steel on this. It's got to be good. So he loved that. He loved that. He just loved music, and he, he, he gave his life to music. There's no doubt about it. It was the thing that mattered most to him. And photography was a adjacent thing to that. He loved photography and loved how it worked in conjunction with music. So being on the road, he could see different places in the world and take beautiful pictures. Being in other bands, he could take pictures of those musicians. It was a real, real thing that worked together. And I feel like surfing also gave him some of that same type of thrill and probably much more 
I don't surf, so I don't know, but I know how important it was to him and how that feeling of surfing uh, was really uh, important to him in his life. And he felt that it all went together, that photography, the surfing and the music went together. And that was what his life was about, really. Yeah. Right. I know that vinyl was really important to him. So I'm curious what you think, um, which songs on the tribute album do you think would really blow his mind? Hmm. Well, my biggest dream now would be for Neil to be here and for him and I to get in a car and go for a long drive. And I have a cassette because we loved cassettes. We love the sound of cassettes in a car stereo. If I had a cassette and I could be like, check this out, man, and play him 41 of his songs done by his friends and musicians he admires, that would blow his mind completely. Uh, it would be an incredible experience. But um, what do I, I mean, it's hard to say what would be some of his favorites. It's just so difficult to know, but there's so many good good ones on there. I think he would be knocked out by the Billy string circles version of all the luck in the world, because it's so unlikely. And the, there's some that almost feel like extensions of Neil's versions, which I think would blow his mind too. Uh, the vetiver version of uh, white fence roundhouse and the fruit bats version. Oh, Jesus. Remind me. What's the title? Feathers for Bakersfield. So go and ask her. You would see nothing until it turns around and leaves you. You see it coming until it finally catches up with you. But the same is true for everyone. There's some things you can't walk away. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so those, I think, almost sound like Neil versions in some ways, uh, decisions that he would make. The Beachwood Sparks version of You Don't See Me Crying, I think he would love. Um, there's just so many. Day in the Sun, Jarek and Susan is incredible. Um, Super Highway from O'Teal and friends is, is also, I think he, he would love that one. Just so every one of them, I think he would be floored by every one of them, every one of them, because writing songs is such a personal experience. And then hearing other people do them. Uh, I, I think he would just be riveted by the whole thing. Undoubtedly. Yeah. There are definitely no skips on this record. Each song is really heartfelt and incredible. And whether it's a very, you know, true to the original interpretation or something way out there. They're all so great. Yeah. So how did you go about sequencing this record? Because I know that was all you. Uh, well, Dave Schools and Jim Scott just basically said, here you go. <laughs> um, those guys worked so hard on making the recordings happen that by the time they were done, I think they were just like, how are we possibly going to sequence 41 songs? And I've always been good at that. For some reason, I've always thought about what's the first song on the album? What should be the last song on the album? And how do you tell the story in between? So with 41 songs, it's a real challenge. And there's also when you're doing it on vinyl, there are technical things that you have to think about. Well, we can only put 21 or 22 minutes per side. So that really also becomes a jigsaw puzzle of how do you assemble this? And Dave Schools had mentioned to me, make sure that the last song on each side is one of the quieter songs, because as you get closer to the middle of a final album, you start to lose some fidelity. So that was one of his tips. So that actually was really helpful because then you could start laying it out a little bit. And uh, I kept putting off the job. I kept listening to the record and going, uh, uh, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. And then one day, uh, I just, uh, a couple things, light bulbs went off and by later that night I had it together and sent it to Dave and Jim and they were pretty much like, yeah, I think we made like one or two adjustments simply because of the sequence of the CD, which is a three CD 
version and we there were a couple things we didn't want to start or end with on a cd so uh it was it was really fun i think neil would have enjoyed that he would have enjoyed the sequencing and we probably probably his sequence probably would have been much different than, than mine <laughs> but that's okay yeah I think you shared a tidbit with me once about how Neil usually put his favorites towards the beginning. And I know you incorporated that because Aaron Lee Tashjian's song is first. And I know that you really I like love that, that one. one. I think that's the definitive version of that song. No insult to Neil because he wrote the song and it's a beautiful song. I never felt like Neil's version of it was the definitive version. I don't know why. I remember saying it to him at the time and he was like, yeah, didn't quite get it the way I thought. Cause we loved that song when he wrote it and the original acoustic demo, there's an acoustic demo and there's also an electric demo, but um, he, I don't think he ever felt like he'd really nailed it. And that might be one of the reasons why it's not earlier in the sequence on no wish to reminisce the album that it, it's on. But Aaron Lee's version to me is just definitive. It's so good. And I want to hear it over and over again. And that's why I put it first on the record. It's a special one. So beyond spearheading everything about Highway Butterfly and executive producing, you also play on the album. <laughs> uh, I spotted your credits playing. Play guitar and banjo yeah my arm was twisted by uh i played a little banjo lick on uh sweet in the distance which dory freeman recorded with teddy thompson singing harmonies but the version of that song was recorded by uh some of neil's closest friends it was kenny roby jeff hill on bass jesse acock on guitar john lee shannon on guitar and tony leone on drums and dave schools producing and they did that recording at a session. Forget what they were doing. They were doing they were doing some kind of live session. Maybe Dave wasn't there, but he certainly had his hand in it. And um, they got in, made an arrangement of the song, and sent it to Dory Freeman to put her vocals on. And then Teddy Thompson put his harmony vocal on. And Kenny called me up and was like, "You got to come over and play some banjo on this." <laughs> so I went over, and I'm 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 decent enough to fumble through a, a little lick. And Kenny Roby goes way back with Neil. He goes all the way back to like 97. He was in a band called Six String Drag that uh, I was managing at the time. And Neil was actually married for a few years in the 90s. And he was married to a wonderful woman named Christy Coleman. And I should mention her because she was a huge influence on Neil's music, photography, really his whole aesthetic. He met her. He used to tag along with me to heavy metal shows uh, that the record label I was working with uh, when our bands would play. And one of our bands was playing at CBGB's famous punk club in Manhattan. And Neil came with me. And that night he met Christy at the bar at CBGB's and they became a couple and subsequently were married for three years and together for about eight or nine years, all told. But she was a huge, huge influence on him. There's no doubt about it. She was a very successful makeup artist, was in the world of fashion and music. She was doing makeup for Patty Hansen, who was Keith Richards' wife. Patty Scalfa, who was Bruce Springsteen's wife. She, she was their main makeup artist. So Neil got to meet Keith, got to meet Bruce Springsteen, went to all kinds of cool events. And Christy, beyond that, it was more Christie's aesthetic for visual things and photography. And she was a huge influence on his subsequent photography career. And when they lived together, they lived out in Western New Jersey and they would just go to thrift stores and walk around taking Polaroid pictures and taking photos and finding vinyl records and old furniture. And they really had a incredible life and it's uh i think it was a great regret of neil's life that that didn't continue but uh she was an amazing influence on him and uh and kenny roby was in a band called six string drag and neil came with me to see them and was like i wonder if they would play my wedding <laughs> and they did and it was just a huge fun fun party and neil and kenny became great friends did tours together made a record together called Black Riversides. And Neil was going to produce Kenny's record that Kenny made right after Neil died. And subsequently Dave Schools stepped in 
Um, so, yeah, so there's so many connections. There's so many stories to each song. And I, that's a whole other podcast that we could do. Yes, absolutely. Let's <laughs> do it. So you have a full archive full of all of Neil's unreleased recordings and demos and probably all kinds of other things. Is there any chance that we'll ever get to yeah, hear those? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're working on a little plan right now, so it might be a year or two away. But I think some of those demos I referred to, we're going we're gonna to put those out so people can hear them. There's tons and tons of live stuff. Luckily, Neil and I were both really good as archivists keeping stuff around. Uh, Neil kept everything. He kept press clippings. He kept recordings of uh, four-track recordings he made. He kept recordings of conversations he had with his mom, his dad, his grandmother, and, of course, photography. He just kept so much and I did as well. In those early days, I used to shoot video on a big giant video camera that I would lug around. So there's a lot of that stuff. And there's just so many great songs that people have never heard. So, and I want them, and I realize it might just be for the diehards and that's totally cool. Totally fine. I think it's important that it's out there for people to discover Here's Neil's best 10 demos from 91 to 93. And here's a great live show from Paris in 2002. Or I'd like to start putting out a bunch of things like that, which we will. Maybe another photography book as well. It's good news for this diehard. <laughs> good. And finally, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the foundation and what the mission means to you and how it's been rolling out so far because already lives are being changed. Yeah, Neil left a very long letter when he died. And one of the things he said was that he wants people to be aware of and other musicians to know about the dangers of the rock and roll lifestyle. Neil was never uh, a drug addict or an alcoholic or anything like that. But you know, as I said, you know, he lived and died for music. So the as you get older and you start missing things like family and just the, quote, normal life that he didn't have, I think it started to wear him out. And I think he suffered from some depression and anxiety issues. And, you know, it's it's painful to think about that a lot of us who were really his close friends just couldn't help him. A lot of us, as we discovered that he was struggling, really tried. And I you know, certainly could go back and say, I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. I think anytime somebody takes their life, you will have those questions of yourself. Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? And I certainly have them. And I know a lot of his friends have those as well. Um, but... I just thought he had said something in his letter that he wanted people to understand how hard it was. And if there's any way we can help other musicians, we need to do it. And so I thought, let's, let's create a foundation here where we can try to raise money to help fellow musicians. And the, the Neil Casal Music Foundation, that is our goal. We want to raise money and help other musicians who might be struggling with either a mental health issue, an addiction, uh, a physical health issue, which is really a, another thing that's understated. When you're a musician, a lot of times you don't have health insurance and you don't, you don't go to the doctor regularly and you don't take care of yourself because you're flying and you're doing this and you're doing that. When you're home, you're tired and you want to lay around and do nothing. So by the time you get into your 40s and 50s, that stuff catches up with you. So what we want to do is well, we don't have health professionals on staff, but we have the ability to raise money through music or shows or fundraising. And we've partnered with companies like Music Cares, which is the Grammys Music Musician Health Foundation. And they've an uh, amazing organization that help older musicians, younger musicians, musicians who are going through health crises or mental health crises. So we've raised a bunch of money that we've given to them that's gone directly to help musicians. Also Backline, which is a company or organization that was formed actually right after Neil and Jeff Austin both took their lives in 2019. And they wanted to be 
an organization that could help musicians who are struggling or having uh, enabling them to have somebody to talk to, even for crew members, people who do lights or sound or drive the trucks. It's just a hard lifestyle to devote your life to, and there need to be places you can go to for help. So Backline has been doing that. There's another organization called Nucci Space, which Widespread Panic has done a lot of work with that help youth in Athens, Georgia. And there's various other organizations that we're partnering with. And the idea is that we're able to raise money and help musicians directly through those organizations or directly ourselves, which we've done as well. There's been a couple close friends of Neil who are musicians who are going through healthcare crises. And we've been able to say, no red tape, here's some money, pay all your bills while you take care of yourself. And that's incredibly rewarding. And I know that would mean the world to Neil that somebody that he knew who was going through a physical health crisis and didn't have health insurance that we've been able to help in Neil's honor. That's an amazing, amazing gift. And the other part of the foundation is to provide instruments and music lessons for kids who, for whatever reason, can't get their hands on them. So you might be a 13-year-old kid and want to play piano or drums or guitar or a trombone. And for whatever reason, music programs have been cut in schools. What can we do? We know all the instrument companies. We can buy discounted instruments. We can just put the effort into getting instruments into kids' hands so that they have that opportunity to learn how to play an instrument and learn what a what a great thing that is. And so we've been able to do that as well through some donations from Fender, D'Angelico. Uh, we've purchased quite a few instruments and we've been rolling out instruments in schools. Actually, the first one was a few months back was the high school that Neil went to, Morris Knowles High School in Morris Knowles, New Jersey. We gave about $5,000 worth of instruments to their band program. And that, that was amazing. Uh, just amazing to think here we are in the hallways that Neil used to walk and we're bringing some guitars in, in his name. So yeah. that's what we want to keep doing. That is really amazing. Both, both parts of the mission are incredible. And I mean, clearly already are helping people. And, and I, I love the idea of a teenager playing, you know, picking up a guitar from Neil virtually and looking up his music and learning one of his songs. That is, you know, a really sweet idea. That's the thing about music that's really beautiful is that you pass it down and you pass it along to other musicians. And just the way Neil was in his bedroom as a 14-year-old learning Keith Richards' licks, hopefully some kid will be learning Neil Casal songs and that will influence their life in some way. And that's the important thing about what we're trying to do to keep Neil's memory alive. I know there's a lot of, oh, I don't know that there is, but it is, Neil was not a household name. He was not a super well-known musician. He was what we would call a musician's musician. Other musicians would always respect Neil because he was such a great player and a thoughtful player and a great listener and a lover of music. And that's what this whole thing is about. And yeah, 41 songs from a guy that you've never really heard of in most cases. Well, that's okay. There's great songs here for you to discover. And if you discover it because you're a Steve Earle fan or a Nora Jones fan or a Billy Strings fan, that's great. Maybe you'll look up Neil Casal's solo albums on Spotify and go, man, this guy was really good. And that's why we're doing this, uh, because that thing that Neil and I, Neil would call those early days when we were working on this stuff, our dreaming days. And, uh, and it's really what it was. We had a, a really big dream together about his career, about him making records and going down in history as one of the, you know, one of the great names in music. Now, he's never going to be uh, Jackson Brown, Neil Young, or any of those guys, and that's totally okay. He's Neil Casal, and he left behind a ton of beautiful songs and beautiful gigs and beautiful friends, and that's what we're trying to carry on. So, Well, Gary, thank you so much for believing in his music from day one and continuing to spread it and do so much good in the world for Neil and for his friends and for his fans and for people who 
aren't even connected with through the work with this foundation. So really appreciate all you do. Well, thanks. Yeah. And I should say, I should say thank you to all his friends and his, his family and uh, musicians that he played gigs with and played, made records with everybody has a little thread in all of this um, because you had influence on Neil and you meant things to him. Neil had so many close friends. I've, that's been astounding how many people I've had beautiful conversations with about Neil and what he meant in their lives. So certainly not just me. And I love that he was able to do that, that he, he influenced so many people, uh, really mainly as a friend and a pal. And, uh, he was hilarious, really, really funny. I think most people have fun stories about him, impressions that he did, just sweet things that he did. And he was a, he was really, really beautiful person. So thank you, Lara. Thank you. Okay. See ya. Okay. Bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Backline, the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline gives artists, crews, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline provides individuals with case management and offers virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breath work. To donate, learn more, or get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. That's B-A-C-K-L-I-N-E dot C-A-R-E. Thanks for listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Casal. Tune in next week to hear more from the artists who made this tribute album a reality. Highway Butterfly, the songs of Neil Casal is out on November 12th. All album net proceeds go to the Neil Casal Music Foundation. You can pre-order the album and learn more at neilcasalmusicfoundation.org. Osiris.